Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to see you here today, whether you're here in person or joining us online. Um, great to have this time with you. Uh, I want to start off with a question. Uh, there's this thing that happens in a lot of stories, and I want to know if you're familiar with it enough so that if I kind of start it off, you know how it's going to end. Uh, it usually starts with uh, a group of, our, of heroes who are traveling through the desert. And what usually happens when you're traveling in the desert in a story, you're, you're, you're running out of uh, water, and the sun is just getting hotter and hotter, and everyone's getting really sweaty and really tired, but it's okay because just over that next dune, what's waiting for them? It's a nice, cool, refreshing Oasis, right? Okay, so you guys are with me, right? You've, you've seen this before. I tried to pick like one story in particular, but there was just too many. Um, and then, of course, they cross the dune, and there's where the oasis should be with the refreshing water and the palm trees. But instead, what do they see? It was just a mirage, right? Or, or you're sometimes it's like, yes, there's the oasis, but it's all dried up now. And then, the, you know, the story gets that much more intense because they were like, rationing their water to see if they could make it. They just had a little, like, they were just about to make it, and then all of a sudden they've got to do this remainder of the journey with no more water and no more provisions, and it, it, just, it just heightens the whole thing in the story, right? Like, this is, this is getting really intense. Now, have you guys ever heard a story like that? that you, yeah, so this is, this is very, very common, and um, I'm going to assume not too many of you have, have literally been in that position where you're crossing deserts, um, and your canteen runs out, and your, your camel is about to run out of gas, or however they work. And, uh, but I, I'm betting almost all of us can, can name a time in our lives where that, a similar sense occurs where we feel like we've got, we've got suffering, we've got hardship piling on, and we're thinking, like, I just need to get to this place. I just need to make it through. And instead of getting this relief or this uh, refreshment that you're counting on, a new hardship gets dumped right onto your lap. Have any of you ever experienced that before? Maybe it uh, takes the form of, uh, you know, some of the mental, emotional things that we can struggle with. I was thinking for, you know, how, how, many, uh, how many students, you know, you're going through that where you're like, okay, I've got school work to do, I've got, you know, things to work on and practice and, and all that. And just when you think you can't add any more to your plate, you find out, you know, something's gone on in, in, in your friend's circle and you've got all this relational drama on top of everything else. Or maybe we're, we're talking physical suffering in a very real sense. I, I, there have been a number of times where I'm talking to people and, and they're giving me like the whole list of like, yes, I've got my surgery for this and then physio for this and then on top of that, like I came down with chicken pox or something like that. I mean, there, there was a time I kind of thought if you were sick with one thing, you couldn't get any more. That was already full. But then we, we kind of find out sometimes that's not exactly how life works. On top of everything else, one more thing comes along or maybe... You've just been in that situation where it's grief and loss, and you're still working through uh, mourning, maybe the loss of a friend or a loved one, and then you get the news, you get the phone call that you've got to go through this all over again. Someone else has passed away. And it makes me wonder that question. I've asked myself, and maybe you've asked yourself as well, how much more suffering can one person 
reasonably be expected to take before it just becomes too much. At, at what point do you look at that, you know, what you have in your, your, your metaphorical canteen that's running dry, and you look for that oasis that you're waiting for, and instead you've got a whole stretch of desert in front of you, and you say, it, it doesn't take a genius to do the math. I don't have enough left in me to get from where I am to where I need to go. The toll of mental and emotional burdens can be more than I am able to bear. Even if I make it through it all, the weight of grief upon grief is going to cause irreparable damage to my capacity for joy. You ever felt that? It's like, if what I'm going through right now, it's going to cause damage in me. I don't think I'll ever be able to smile again after going through what I'm going through right now. When that is itself the theme that we are reflecting on this morning in our psalm. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead, open up to Psalm 126. Psalm 126. And we'll have the words on the screen as well for Psalm 126. This is part of the collection of the Psalms of Ascent uh, that we've been working through. They're the songs for the pilgrims who return to Jerusalem for the feasts. Uh, songs to sing on the journey, songs for the road trip, as it were. And uh, this one in particular recalls an earlier pilgrimage. So it's a song for the journey about another journey that happened a long time ago. Now, just so you have a bit of context, the, uh, it's always good to have a bit of refresher. You know, in the Old Testament, it starts off with you know, God bringing his people into the promised land with uh, guys like Moses and Joshua and then you fast forward a bunch of years and then you see that they've prospered and they're building a temple uh, with guys like David and Solomon. Then you fast forward a few more years and then the people eventually rebel against God's leadership and are led into exile. And that's where you get stories from uh, the exile for people like Daniel and Esther. But because of God's great mercy, he hears the cry of repentance from his people who have been deported into far-off lands, and he brings them back to Jerusalem. That's the event that sets the backdrop for the psalm that we're looking at. It's, it opens with a reflection of what that experience was like coming home after all those years of living in bondage. And, and, I, and I say that to the outside because I'm going to read through the whole thing, and I want you to listen very carefully and pay attention to the emotional highs and lows that are reflected in this psalm of the journey back home. I'll read through the whole thing, and then we'll go back and look at the two halves of this psalm more closely. This is Psalm 126. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dream. Our mouths were filled with laughter then, and our tongues with shouts of joy. Then they said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord had done great things for us. We were joyful. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like water courses in the Negev. Those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. Though one goes along weeping, carrying the bag of seed, he will surely come back with shouts of joy, carrying his sheaves. So 
we're going to look at that now in a bit more detail, uh, covering the first half, which is more on the, the experience of past comfort, and then we're going to uh, fast forward to the second half, which covers the present difficulties in prayer for future deliverance. And, and as we're going through, I, I want, if this helps you, I want you to almost imagine you that the psalmist himself, the singer, the pilgrim, whoever he is, maybe an old man or old woman just on the journey, that this is a, this is a very personal account. There's some, again, as you saw, there's some very strong emotions tied up in here, and this is very real uh, people that we're talking about. So beginning with this experience of past comfort. The psalm opens in verse 1 with this reference to the days when God restored the fortunes of Zion. And that's a, a biblical linguistic way of saying the day that we were brought back from captivity. And so this, uh, this affects two groups of people very specifically. One is the people who were born into captivity. Um, they've never known anything else apart from slavery and bondage and indentured servitude. And for them, this is for the first time ever experiencing having a homeland of their own. And, of course, the other group of people, as we actually know in the Bible and other places, says that there are people who are returning from exile who were actually born in Judah before the exile, who lived through the deportation, through this, some, you know, somewhere around 70 years long. So you think these people are at least 70 years old. Some of them are making that journey back home. Can you, can you imagine what that's like, going back to a place that you haven't seen for 70 years? And in this context, they're, they're living in captivity, they're living in bondage, and then you, you get the news one day that you get to go home. The proclamation is issued all over the Persian Empire. The Jews have permission to go back to their homeland. What kind of a level of good news is that, right? It's just, it's unbelievable to imagine. And as exciting as that is about like, yes, this is really true. You get to leave this awful job that you hate and you get to go back and have a homeland of your own. And you think about the preparation. They're packing stuff up. They're saying goodbye. They're, you know, doing their last shift of that job they really don't like and they get to go be free. And if that's exciting enough, you, you imagine this is the the moment itself as they draw near the city. What, what is that like when you look around the corner or look up the, up the hill and there you see the city of Jerusalem for the first time? If you wonder what that's like, he's going to tell us what it was like. He said the joy that we experienced in that moment, in, and this is in the latter half of verse 1 and verse 2, it says the joy we tasted in that moment was incomprehensible. It was like being in a dream. It didn't even feel like it could be real. It was that awesome. And, and all we could do, when we opened our mouths, all we could do was laugh for joy. I, I, I've never been an indentured servant in Persia for 70 years, but I imagine there is not a lot of laughter that happens in that kind of life. And, and so, we, and so this, the psalmist, this, this, this person telling us the story was like, this was a beautiful moment. Our whole community there, we're approaching the city, and we had so much joy, we couldn't even put it into words. We opened our mouths, joyful laughter came out. <laughs> that's, that's all we could do. What a beautiful, beautiful moment. And not only that, but everyone else around began to testify to God's goodness in our lives. And in verse 2 he, uh, and 3, he talks about how 
the, the words going out among the, the nations around them, that the Lord has done great things for them. And remember, the whole story of the Old Testament is set against the backdrop of all the surrounding nations with a running commentary of what, what they think is going on. Everybody, whether they like the Jews or not, had to admit they're experiencing a once-in-a-lifetime, maybe once-in-a-dynasty level of joy and favor. This is not a moment that everyone gets to see in a lifetime. This is unparalleled level of favor. And when they finally are able to speak, they can only confess the same that's being echoed around them. In verse 3, the Lord has done great things for us. And we were joyful. God is good, and we're happy. God has lavished his mercy and kindness upon a broken-hearted people and filled them with incomprehensible joy. It's, it's a beautiful moment, isn't it? And it makes sense where you see in this why, why they wanted to put it into words, why they wanted to remember, why they wanted to say, everyone who makes this journey, you've you got to remember that time that we made this journey and what it was like for us because this is not an everyday occurrence. But of course, that was then, but what about now? And if this is the, uh, you know, to use our earlier illustration, if this is them you know, uh, drawing near the oasis for refreshment after a weary and long, tiring journey. This is where the mirage kind of fades out of the way. And if you can hear in your mind that laughter, that joy, it begins to dissolve as well into sad faces and more broken hearts and more people bent low with sorrow and suffering. The scene changes, and people are no longer laughing. They are weeping, and it feels kind of wrong, doesn't it? Because that's not really how the story is supposed to go, because if there was ever a point where a good and they lived happily ever after should have taken place, this would be a great place to insert that. But instead, we get something different. And so I want you to imagine that same uh, singer telling about the story of this joy. If the scene changes now, Things are a little bit harder now. Things are back to being sorrowful. Things are back to being hard. And here's what, here's what they are singing. They're saying, God, we need you once again now more than ever. In verse 4, he says, restore our fortunes, Lord. That's a, again, biblical language way of saying, do your saving again. We need you to rescue us once more. Now, I think there's something very uh, profound in how this is taking place here because you, you probably know, uh, as well as I do, that looking back to when things were good, when things are hard, is a very dangerous thing, isn't it? Right? You know, we, we call that, that reminiscing about the good old days. It's like, well, why can't things be like it is back then? Oh, remember, we didn't used to have to deal with this. I remember when this happened, and, all, like, and man, how quickly can that just poison a heart, right? How quickly can that just completely pollute our mindset and our mentality? Well, that's not what's happening here. He is focusing on what God has done in the past with expectation for what God is going to do in the future. 
See, life after exile continued to be filled with very real hardship. And if you were to look at the books of like Ezra and Nehemiah, they, they cover all these stories of what was life like after exile when you're returning back to your homeland. And what you find that these books are filled with is that life after exile is actually really hard. It's full of hardship, and there's internal strife, and there's external hardship, and it's hard, and it's painful, and it's frustrating, and it's confusing. And, you know, at the end of at, at the book of Ezra, it, it almost ends with Ezra basically, like, falling down and saying, like, God, we've done nothing but mess up ever since you saved us. You know, for, for all the goodness and grace and mercy you, we've experienced, we, it's only gotten harder ever since, ever since you brought us back. Which is why the psalmist is singing at this point, we aren't done needing to be saved yet. We, we need more of that work in our hearts these days. And he, he references in verse uh, 4 this like water course in the Negev. Negev is a reference to a very arid uh, part of that region, um, very dry. That's kind of our desert picture right there. And he says, like, we need you to flood this desert. Now, and, and I think there's some very real uh, uh, concepts there. If you're, thinking, if you're imagining your hardship like a desert, he's praying here, we need you to flood this desert. Like, this is how big the need is. We need a, enough grace and mercy and rescue to flood a desert. That's more than a little sprinkle, isn't it? And I hope that you get a sense of how uh, aware he is of how difficult their hardship is that they're going through in this uh, post-exile life that they're going through. And now there's a, there's a reality to this, this area that was called the Negev. Um, uh, some commentators say that this is actually a, a part of the land that almost never sees rain, but it will on occasion. Not like a, an every year, every season thing, but it will on occasion. There will be a certain level of rain where certain streams will overflow enough. And in those cases, like it will actually flood this very arid region. And what was once a very dry desert will be covered in water. And that's, of course, the picture he picks to describe the type of deliverance. Saying, like, this is not an everyday type of salvation. This is not an everyday type of deliverance. But we need a lot, and we need it now. We have experienced your great salvation in the past. We're not denying that. We're not dismissing what God has done. But we've faced day after day of hardship and sorrow ever since. And we're in a tough place right now. So how do you keep going after this? And that's where his prayer comes in very pointedly. Uh, in verse 5 and 6, you get to see this taste of, this is not just grumbling about how things were better than, this is fueling, again, a sense of confidence in who God is and who God will be for his people. He says in verses 5 and 6, those who sow in tears will reap with shouts of joy. The one goes along weeping, carrying the bag of seed, he will surely come back with shouts of joy, carrying his sheaves. That's a very metaphor-laden passage, but effectively what he's saying here is that uh, we're not merely suffering, we are planting. You see that? We're not merely 
being beaten up and pressed down in here. We are preparing a harvest. In us, God is preparing a harvest of joy that we will experience in the future. It's not a hope that God will keep them from sorrow, not even a hope that God will simply remember them in sorrow, but the confidence that the sorrow itself, God will refashion into joy. And so I want you to see this picture he's saying. This is the song that we sing along the road as these pilgrims come back year after year to Jerusalem. You see, you look at the people to your right, look at the people to your left. We've got a lot of baggage in our crew, right? Got a lot of people, you look at them like, man, their life seems like one series of disaster after disaster. And in in a worldly sense, we see people who are kind of like bent down low under the burden that life has put on them. What the psalmist is saying here is what they are carrying is a harvest of future joy. Those tears that they have dropped along the road, God is keeping track of them. They're not meaningless. They're not worthless. They are purposed by God to return to future joy down the road. God has prepared a harvest of joy for those who suffer trusting in him. Now, I think every one of us would be in the right to just say, okay, that sounds great, but how does that all work exactly? And I think if we're honest, we were to ask the psalmist himself, like if we were to go in a time machine, ask him, he'd like, I don't even know how it all fits together. I know God somehow works it out. Our confidence is him, in him, um, but I, I don't exactly know how it all fits together. And we, we have the privilege of being on the other side of the cross that we can actually look back to the stories of Jesus and the teachings of the apostles who actually unpack this idea in a little bit more clarity. Now, most of you have probably heard the gospel story before that Jesus, you know, the Son of God, came into the world, no sin, did nothing wrong, yet he died on the cross to take the place for us. That anyone who puts their trust in him will have eternal life, will experience forgiveness uh, from all their sin. That is, that is one of the most beautiful things accomplished in the death and resurrection of Jesus. But as you read the New Testament, you realize there are a whole lot more things that are wonderful and amazing that are accomplished through the, through the cross, through the death and resurrection of Jesus. And one of them that we're looking at today is this idea of redemption of our suffering. I don't have the words on the screen, but... Uh, uh, Peter goes on a really great teaching point in, uh, in 1 Peter 1, 3 to 9, talking about this very thing. And uh, basically, he says that because Jesus died and rose again, and because you trust in him, your suffering has a redeemed value for you. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to read it for you, just the sort of the middle section so you can hear that. Uh, Peter says in, uh, in verse 6 and 7, uh, he says, uh, you rejoice in this, even though now for a short time, if necessary, you suffer grief in various trials, so that the proven character of your faith, more valuable than gold, which, though imperishable, is refined by fire, may result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Saying your suffering is not meaningless. In fact, no Christian ever experiences meaningless suffering. Did you know that? It's redeemed because of the cross of Christ. Now, why do we need to know all this? And I want to kind of bring it back to that opening question of what do we do when the amount of suffering we experience 
legitimately feels like it's more than we can handle. When you're kind of measuring, like, this is how much is in my canteen, and it's gradually getting lower and lower, and it's dry now, and there's a desert in front of me. I'm doing the math. I do not have in me what it takes to do what's ahead of me. And I think part of the encouragement that we're spoken of in a psalm like this is that the deep sorrow that we experience is the ground out of which he grows our joy. The very space where grief hits hardest, he will restore with joy on the day that Christ returns. In the desert of broken hearts, he will flood with his healing compassion. Now, I remember encountering this personally a number of uh, years back where um, I had to reconcile the Christian life with what I thought it should be and what it actually turns out to be. Uh, when, I, when I first became a Christian, you know, around in my mid-teens or whatever, and then, you know, some years of struggle and challenging, and then, you know, it seemed like things are starting to get better. And I thought, man, this is exactly what a testimony should be like, Right? You know, you start out at hardship, you have trouble, you have trials, you have frustration, and then gradually, because of Jesus, those things begin to subside, and you begin to enjoy a more peaceful and secure life. Now, that's true, perhaps, in one sense of the terms, but I wasn't prepared that some of the hardest things that I were to experience in life actually came after choosing to follow Jesus. Have you ever had that as well? And I had to do uh, some business with my uh, Cinderella theology that said, look, I am, I am okay with there being hard stuff in my life as long as it is in the proper place. We start with the bad stuff. Life is hard. And then it gradually gets better and better. You can put all sorts of bad stuff in there if I have the confidence. No, it's just going to get better and better and easier and easier. But that's not the reality that we experience. And I think what I felt the, felt the need to say, especially this morning as we're going through this, is I, I think sometimes we need to consciously push back against that uh, mentality that we can kind of let flow into the church at times. And we just need to say, look, we need to let people know. We need to let each other know there is space at the table for people who cry uh, deeply and often. Can we say that? And not make them feel like they're a bad Christian because they're suffering. Because things have not panned out the way that they hoped. Or because it feels like they're getting an unfair share of the hard things in life. I think we as a church, regardless of where we are in this experience, we need to make sure that that seat is there at the table. If you are hurting, if you've experienced intense suffering, and it just seems to add and add and add, you are welcome You are not disqualified because of that. In fact, I think you're the very person that Christ personally invites to say, you need to be here. You need to experience this. Our hope is, it's not just that things gradually get easier. Life is messy. Life is complicated. And I think as well that just a reminder that we don't need to rush one another through grief. You know what I mean? 
sometimes there's, there's that temptation. Maybe it comes from a good place, too, where it's just like if someone's expressing that they're hardship, it's kind of like, well, let's fast forward over. Like, let's look at the positive instead of like, no, you know, it's, it's, it's okay if we need to listen to people talk about how things are really not going well and that it's really hard. And if, even if they've got doubts and frustrations about following Jesus right now, let's not rush people, okay? Let's, let's learn to walk a little slower when suffering is part of the picture. Because the, the reality is our hope is not in the gradual reduction of grief, but in the deep, deep reckoning of our sorrow at the return of Christ when all things will be made new again. Do you, do you understand what I mean by that? Our hope is not that things just get better and better the longer we follow Jesus. It's that one day, no matter how many ups or downs or highs or lows, all of it, all that sorrow is going to be dealt with. He's going to work through it, right? That's our hope. How do we do this practically? I, I thought of two things that were very, uh, that came to mind for that. Number one, I, I think we also need to really work at making sure that we're willing to pray for significant restoration. I, I think that's wired into the, the words of this psalm here. We're saying, God, you have saved us greatly in the past. You are able to bring slaves out of bondage into a homeland of their own. You can do great things. And it is not a, you know, it's not to be dismissed when we say we need you to do great things again. And I feel like this is just one of those like internal cleansing things I feel in my own heart where it's like over time, like my window of what I think God can do just gradually gets smaller and smaller. Do you ever feel that? You know, if I'm going to like track my prayers over time, it's like my expectation just kind of slowly whittles down. And I think we need one of these, this psalmist guy to kind of speak to us and say, I'm praying for God to do it again. I'm praying for him to do something that most people live their whole lives never seen. I want, I need God to do that. He is a big God with big salvation. And that's who we need. I think we need to be more comfortable, more willing to pray for God to bring big deliverance where it's needed. Even if there are parts of us so dry, it feels like it could never be transformed. That's number one. Number two, I, I think we just need to learn how to suffer well. I know that sounds really funny, or not funny, it just sounds off. But uh, I remember a, a number of years ago, I was in a, a, I think it was a seminary class or something like that, and I think the professor was asking something like, hey, I want you to all think about someone that you really, really respect. And, you know, we were all thinking, okay, yeah, I can, I can think of someone. And then, you know, brought the question over. It's like, I just want to know for everyone in the room, how many of the people you thought about, uh, have they experienced significant suffering in their life? And it was kind of like going around the room and like, oh, man, yeah. Yeah, they really had a tough go, but somehow their faith was strong and they, they persevered and they, you know, they, they loved God even more, even at the co significant cost. And, 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 you know, the, the point of that exercise being, like, there's, there's, that's not a coincidence, really, is it? One of the most influential things that a, a person can do is model to others how to suffer well. How do you do it without falling into the trap of, you know, the thinking about the good old days or grumbling about how hard it is? How do we be like that old man who's just like, do it again, God. You did it before, do it again. Even though we're back in the desert. And I encourage young people here, like, commit yourself to learning how to do this well. 
And I understand that you guys get so much expectation of what it means to be successful in life and how to be accomplished and how to do well. Just let me just encourage you. There is so much value, so much wealth in just being able to suffer with dignity, suffer with faith, and to persevere knowing that God's got your back no matter what. And those of us who are older, let's, let's model that, okay? Let's, let's find a way so that when we go through these things, we remember that this is, this is sending a message. How we respond to suffering, how we respond to hardship, God uses that. We're, we're, we're being watched. And man, we need God to help us model that, right? The amount of suffering that we experience often seems to exceed the limits of what is reasonable. That's just, we can acknowledge that is true. Life is hard. We've got some tough days. We've got some tough seasons. But out of the deep sorrow, we know he is growing for us deeper joy. So we ask that just as a conclusion, let's pray, asking God to restore us again for where we need to be restored and help us to suffer well and serve as an example to those who are watching. Let's pray together. God, your plans are confusing to us at times. You tell a story that is different in many ways than how we would like the story to be told and includes elements that... um, that are hard, that we aren't always ready for, and that really do stretch us at times and maybe even make us question your goodness or your ability to watch over us. And I pray that in those spaces where we've experienced hardship and difficulty, that you would make yourself present and that we would know your goodness and your wisdom and your love in an ever-deepening way. I pray for... uh, those for whom maybe this is a bit of a difficult message. I know it's, we don't always talk this way in church, and um, it's hard at times to uh, give sorrow space, and I just pray that you would help us to um, help us be transformed by your Holy Spirit, that we would follow the example of your son Jesus, who is truly the model of what it means to suffer. And I pray as well for those of us who are in dry places, maybe where it feels like they're We've almost given up on hope for being restored. I pray that you would just spark that enthusiasm, spark that conviction in us that, no, you are not done. And you want us to ask. You want us to pray. Not according to what feels good to us necessarily, but just according to your character, according to your word. You are a God of great salvation, and we need it. We need it in so many ways today. Help us to live out this example for our young people. And whatever storms they may encounter as they grow, God, we have have no idea what kind of things they're going to continue to face as they get older. And it is a challenge at times knowing what to impart and to teach and impress upon young people that's still going to be relevant, but we know this is true. They learn to suffer well and will carry them very far in life. Carry them very far in their faith with you. And I also pray for just your peace to rest upon us this rest of this day as we go from here, that we would know that we walk in your love, however dry, however comfortable, however discomforted, 
You are a good God. You have mercy on us, and it's in your mercy that we walk, and it's in your grace that we pray. In the name of Jesus, amen. Thank you, everyone. Uh, if we're uh, packing up, we don't need the chairs taken up this morning, so you feel free to leave them where they are. So.